week we'll do the resurrection. Uh, and if there's ever been a good enough reason to stop in the middle of a series, Easter would be it. I mean, because there's nothing that reveals Jesus' sacrifice and the love he has for us like this triumphal entry uh, and the resurrection. Uh, now today we'll begin, like I said, with this triumphal entry into Jerusalem and what that event actually means. There's a lot to that uh, event. Um, but not even Jesus' disciples really knew the significance of what entering into Jerusalem that day in the specific way he did, why that was so important. Uh, his disciples, you know, were encouraged, as were a lot of the followers that were there at his arrival. And you could tell by the excitement level that the Bible tells us they have. Uh, and rightfully so, because, you know, this is God's Son and promised Messiah, and he's being revealed and arriving. But Jesus knew this event was so much more than just revealing his messiahship or revealing that he was uh, the messiah uh, this event also marked the beginning of the last week of his life his human life here on earth um now notice i didn't say it was the end of his life because he's still here and still with us it was just the end of his human life and earthly ministry the people may have praised that arrival then and i, and I understand why they did but they didn't realize that soon all that praise was gonna was gonna be mourning because they would mourn his departure just as much as they praised his arrival uh, because he would be crucified that week but that morning would be short-lived, that, that morning that they had after he was crucified, because soon everything would change. Because in week one, in this, in this one week between the triumphal entry and the resurrection, Jesus' sacrificial death was going to take the power of sin that the enemy had over us and destroy it. He was going to defeat death, hell, and the grave. And I love how the Apostle Paul describes that in Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 17. He said, For the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. A lot of people ask me about that. Basically what that means is Adam's sin represented what all man would do. Because people say, well, I didn't do it. You would have. If you were there, <laughs> you would have, right? Uh, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness for all who receive it and live in triumph over sin uh, and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because one other person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they are. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So just as sin ruled over all people uh, and brought death to them, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us the right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I think that's a great description of what happened there. Now, Jesus' victory over death, when this happened, there was going to be praises again, just like they were when he entered into Jerusalem. But ironically, those soon-coming praises would be started at the door of an empty tomb. And I'm excited about preaching that next week. But today we're going to break down the triumphal entry of Jesus into three sections. And it's the preparation, which is Jesus preparing to enter in uh, to Jerusalem. And then the presentation, when he rides in to the city amongst all these, uh, or amidst all these praises, and then the third section will be the prophecy, and this is when Jesus prophesies the destruction of Jerusalem uh, when he has to deal with the leaders. So let's jump right in. We're in Matthew's chapter 21, and we'll be going back and forth between Matthew and Luke, but Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. It said, uh, When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethpage uh, at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the, opposite, to the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. 
This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them, and brought uh, the donkey back. I'm sorry, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Now, here's kind of what happened to this point. It was time. So Jesus was ministering in Jericho, uh, and he left Jericho to head toward Jerusalem. And he stops when he gets just outside Jerusalem at this town called Bethpage, and he wanted to prepare for two events. First, he was preparing to enter a city where there was a lot of unbelieving Jews that were very hostile toward him. They did not like him. They didn't believe he was the Messiah. And honestly, their goal was to see him killed. That's what they wanted. All right. The second thing he was preparing for was the statement that was about to be made by him riding in on that donkey or that foal, depending on what your translation says. That arrival in that fashion made a very powerful statement, and he knew what that statement was going to do. See, because Jesus' triumphal, uh, triumphal entry was the fulfillment of a really powerful messianic prophecy. When I say messianic, that means a prophecy about the coming Messiah. In essence, Jesus moving in on this day, riding in on this day, I should say, is God's way of revealing the identity of his chosen Messiah. See, for centuries, people had waited for the Messiah, and they had dreamed in their mind what this Messiah would look like. Most of the Jews wanted this, this uh, Messiah that would be a, a general and a, and a brilliant battle strategy and someone who would who would rule with an iron fist and lift jerusalem up and make them the the dominant nation of that time that's what they were looking for they wanted someone a lot like king saul in the old testament that was their mindset but when jesus entered jerusalem humbly riding on this donkey or this this foal actually a colt of the donkey that was not what those jews had wanted but god was making a statement he was saying listen you want to know who the messiah is here he is this is him right here so he came in, and that's how he was identified. Now, Zechariah and Isaiah both, and I didn't quote those because he did, uh, were very specific when they described this messianic event. I mean, it said that he would ride in on the foal of a donkey. That's what he would ride in on. That's, and they knew that. They knew that's how it was supposed to be. And Jesus knew that most of the Jewish people at that time knew their, their prophecy. Remember, the Jews weren't raised like the modern-day kids are raised. They were raised steeped in tradition. They were raised to know the Word of God. Uh, they were raised to know all the ceremonies and all the pageantry of the Jewish religion. They were raised that way. So most people understood the prophecies because the Jews were really good about uh, passing down orally the, the traditions uh, and, and the beliefs of the Jewish people. So Jesus knew they all knew what was going on. Uh, and he knew that by doing this, he was proclaiming his true identity, and they were going to know that. Okay, they were going to know that by making sure he came in the way the Bible prophesied he would come in, it was him intentionally saying, I am the Son of God. Now, when we read verses 1 through 7, the fact that God's sovereign plan was unfolding starts to become really obvious, okay? Because Jesus tells the disciples, this had to be a strange command, okay? Because he tells the disciples, he says, I want you to go into town, and you're going to see this donkey tied up, and it's going to have a, a colt with it, okay? So that means the colts are all children of donkeys. Never mind, I'll let that go. Anyway, that's the Steelers fan in me coming out. But anyway, uh, so he says, go into town and you'll find this, this donkey tied up and you'll see it, it'll have a foal with it. And he's saying, I want you to take them. Now, think about that for a second. The, in, in our terms, it'd be like, I want you to go into town and you're going to find this Buick. I want you to steal it. You know what I mean? That's, that had to be kind of what they were feeling like. So he said, I want you to take it. And they're like, well, I mean... What about the guy who owns it, right? Look at this, Matthew 21, 2. 
Again, it says, saying to them, uh, go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. So this is God's sovereignty just showing itself in this plan because the fact that some strange man that they don't know would see two people taking his donkey in his colt and say, what are you doing? Oh, the, the master has need of it. And he'd say, okay, take it. I mean, if that doesn't show you that God's plan is already uh, coming to fruition, I don't know what will. I mean, most people back then, they made their living. That was like their tractor taking one of their donkeys. Okay, that wasn't like, like in our day. I mean, this was something they needed to make a living. But because God, this was God's plan unfolding, the Spirit was speaking to this man and said, let him have him. And he gave it to him. Now, as soon as the disciples bring it back to Jesus, they take their own cloaks, their own coats off, and they lay it on him as a, for kind of like a makeshift saddle because they wanted him to be comfortable. And this showed that they had this, this fondness, this, this love for him and this respect for him, and they were always trying to make uh, that respect and that love known and that faith known, even if it was just making him comfortable. Now, one of the things people ask me is, why did he send them to get the colt? It seems like an unnecessary step, doesn't it? I mean, he's God. If he wanted, he could have had it waiting on him with a rhinestone saddle on, if he wanted. He's God. He could have made that donkey already there, already waiting on him. But this was something more. See, this was one of his last opportunities before his death to reveal that he was God, that he was omniscient, that he was all places at all times, that he did have all knowledge at all times. Just because he was in a human body didn't mean he wasn't all God. He was all God and all man. And so by doing this, he's telling them, listen, I see this, you don't. In the future, here's what's going to happen. No one could see down the tunnels of time unless they were God. And this was his way of showing that, hey, I am the God that you think I am. This is confirmation that he was still all God and all man, and everything that was about to happen, God was in complete control of. And he wanted them to have that confidence. He wanted them to know that they were serving the Son of God who was God himself, they wanted him to know that because he knew that in that week, their world was going to be turned upside down. Now, a lot of people don't realize the disciples, they knew more than most. But they still were raised in those Jewish traditions. They were still raised believing the things that the Jews taught. So parts of them could not believe, even though he had told them. It was hard for them to believe, you know, I just can't see them killing him. In their mind, they thought, you know, maybe it's a metaphor. I mean, I don't see them killing him. He's the son of God. How can man kill the Son of God? So you have to remember the disciples really believed that Jesus was going in making his announcement and that millennial kingdom was probably going to begin now because here's the Messiah we've been waiting for. They weren't hearing him. Have you ever wanted to believe something so bad that you pass on the obvious just to try to believe it? You ever wanted to believe that so bad like that your kid is actually good enough to, to start? And they're, and they're, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't take that. No, but... Um, you want to believe something so bad that you almost convince yourself of it. That's kind of what happened here with the Jews. They had convinced themselves that he was not going to be killed. Peter even said that. He said, may it never be, right? And Jesus responded, get behind me, Satan, right? Because he knew that only the enemy would put that thought in his mind. So they were totally stoked, and their world was going to be turned upside down. And he wanted to teach them by telling them what was coming down the road and how to handle it. He wanted to teach them that when I'm gone, as long as you obey God, everything is going to work out. Because he's already got a plan in motion. And nobody's going to change that. And this even should 
have that effect on us as believers when we read this, but God still wants us to have that mindset. You hear me preach this all the time, but we shouldn't allow the circumstances around us to define us. We shouldn't, allow, we shouldn't just surrender when things are going rough in this country because, listen, God has a plan and nothing's going to change that, right? And if God calls you to do something, has anybody here ever had a battle within themselves because you know God's calling you to do something, but your fears, your uncertainties, you're worried about what people might think. All those things start rushing through your mind. So you hesitate. Because you're thinking, let me make sure. And sometimes you spend 20 years making sure and it passes you by. But sometimes God puts something on your heart, something strong on your heart. And when he does that, we can be confident of the same thing he was trying to teach the disciples. If he's calling you to do something, he's worked out the details. When he said, go get that donkey and the, and the colt with it, he's saying, listen this is already handled the details are handled here's where it is here's what you say everything's going to work out the same thing happens for us when god has a plan for us if we follow that plan if we answer that call we have to trust that he's going to work out all the details that's just the way it is for example i don't know if you ever had something on your heart and then you were you really felt good about it and then someone may have said something about how difficult that was the enemy can discourage you especially if you ever notice through your family is that, I probably shouldn't be saying that, but you know, if you ever notice your family's the one that always goes, you're, you're stupid, come on, seriously, you know, I just learned early on, just, if God had plans for me, don't even tell them, just tell my wife, she loves me, she'll actually lift me up, even if it's a lie, but, no, I'm just kidding, but sometimes it, people just discourage you, but when God puts something on your heart, trust that he has worked out the details, right, uh, and when he does put that on your heart, don't even hesitate, don't even hesitate, don't worry about how people are going to react, God already has all that under control. Have you ever had God put it on your heart to talk to somebody about Jesus? Boy, that's a tough one, isn't it? Because you think, I'm going to talk to them about Jesus. Then the enemy starts getting into your mind. Start saying things like, well, hold on a minute now. Are you sure you want to talk to them? You know their temper. You know what they think about preachers. You know what they think about church. You start talking to them, they might get mad. They might think you're stupid. They might flat out reject you. Maybe they'll listen, but I don't know. And that thought starts getting into your mind, right? And so we start backing away from that. But this should teach us something. If God puts it on your heart, that person's ready to hear. If God puts it on your heart, they will hear what you have to say. I mean, the cults found the, 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 the disciples found this cult right where God said it was. Everything happened exactly like he said because they trusted him. And that should teach us something. See, God doesn't ask us to do anything that he won't also empower us to do successfully if he's asked you to do it you've already succeeded at it all you have to do is accept it if he said do this he's not saying do this let's see how it works out he's not saying you know i'm curious to see if you're going to make it that's not what he's saying if god says do this it means i've already got this set up i just need you to say yes i just need you to take the job you're going to succeed and not only will he empower us he'll also give us all the resources we need they'll be there when they got there they didn't have to go around hunting for a, for a donkey and a colt. He told them where it was. The resources were there, right? And they didn't have to worry about opposition. God will remove the opposition you're worried about because the opposition was obviously the man who owned it. And yet, God had already handled his heart and worked out that opposition. He's going to work out any serious resistance. He's going to get that under control. We just have to answer the call. Now, I'm going to share a personal experience. When I first got saved, now, the church I was raised in, the idea of giving was not welcome very much. 
okay? I mean, when people would give, they would hold a dollar up under a microscope to make sure there wasn't two stuck together before they put it in there. I mean, that's just the way it was. So the concept of giving was kind of foreign to me. I didn't understand that. And so when I first got saved, that was a battle for me, learning how to trust God with my money. Because let's be honest, if all of us are honest, that's a tough one, isn't it? Because you're starting to think, I always hear stuff like, what do they need my money for anyway? You know what I mean? Stuff like that. Well, it was tough for me. And God put it on my heart that he wanted me to increase my giving. Now let me, let me fill you in on a few things. I was broke. Okay, not far from it now, but I was really broke then. Right? And I remember thinking to myself, give more of what? You know, that's honestly what I thought because I was so spiritual. I thought, give more of what? I don't have that much. But it just wouldn't, it wouldn't get out of my mind. And I remember <laughs> here I'm trying, I had a business that had failed and I was trying to pay that off and it was a very large sum. Uh, and I remember talking to my wife about this and that was like walking the green mile to your execution, walking to tell my wife, hey, let's give more money that we don't have. You know what I mean? But it was on my heart so I talked to my wife about it and we prayed about it and we said, okay, we're just going to do it. We're just going to do it. We'll let him work out the details. You know what it taught us? You can't outgive him and everything we ever needed since then, he's always provided. He was trying to show me, listen, you hold on so tight to your money. You hold on so tight to these these uh, exterior things thinking that they have some kind of control over your life. The banks don't have control over your life. It's not them that's going to provide for you. It's not the government that's going to provide for you, although they'd like you to think that. Right? Those people, you know who's going to provide for you as a believer? God. That's who's going to provide for you. He just wants you to trust and believe that He will. And He always, always provides for His people, especially when we trust Him. See, I think we limit God. Especially in areas like that. You know what I mean? We think God can do all things, but we don't like talking about money. Right? Here's the thing. Let me tell you what I've seen God do, and I can see Him continually doing. I have witnessed God clean up addicts. People that everybody said were hopeless, there was no chance, no prayer for them. And they are godly men serving powerfully in a church somewhere today, serving God powerfully. You're looking at one. Okay? God can clean up addicts. I've seen Him reform criminals. I remember we had a guy one time that was doing our purchasing. You're going to think this is funny who was arrested for burglary <laughs> and did time for burglary. And people go, don't you think that's maybe a bad idea? And I'm like, no, he did a great job. You know why? Because God can reform people and make them into someone they weren't before, right? And he used to laugh about that all the time. He's like, my friends can't believe that I'm doing this here after what I was in jail for. And I'm like, well, your friends only know the old you. They don't know the one that God got a hold of and changed. You're not that guy anymore. I've seen him reform criminals. I've seen him save marriages that everybody said, it's over. It's over. That's what the world wants you to think. They want you to think that you've done too much for God to be able to heal your situation. But I've, I've, I've witnessed, personally witnessed, God save marriages that everyone else had written off. And that's just a few things that I've witnessed God change. See, when we see things like this where he said, go find the donkey and it was there, tell the guy who's going to ask you this question, give him this answer, it's God telling us, Listen, I am sovereign. I don't guess how things end. I know how they end. And when I put you on a path, I know how it ends. And I put you on that path for a reason. Because I want at the end of that path for you to find out that by trusting me, it always works out. That's why I put you on that path. The same thing that he was trying to teach these apostles and these disciples, he was trying, he's still trying to teach us. You know, and I, I sometimes I just think we miss that. Now, let's move on to presentation. Matthew 21, 8. It says, Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, 
and others were cutting branches from trees and spreading them on the road. Anybody have any guesses what kind of branches those were? Palm branches, which is why we call today. You're like, branch Sunday. No, palm Sunday. <laughs> okay. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, this may, have, this may be one of the most important proof texts on a fact of life that I tell people all the time. And that fact of life is people will quickly turn on you. Has anybody ever experienced that? Like four of us, the rest of you guys have perfect lives? Well, I'm just being honest. It's usually someone really close to you, but trust me, people will turn on you. People don't always mean what they say. And that's a life lesson you get from this, because these people were yelling and screaming out. They were saying, Hosanna to the son of David when he first enters this city. They're crying that out. In the Hebrew, that word Hosanna means save us, and some uh, actually translate it to save us, we pray. So they're coming in calling out to the only person they could call that out to, the Messiah. They believed he was the Messiah. And they're calling out, save us, save us, we pray. And they were calling him the son of David. Now the son of David was a title that the Hebrews gave to the coming Messiah because God promised David that in his lineage would come the Messiah. So people called the Messiah the son of David. So they were calling him, they were saying, Hosanna or save us, son of David, Messiah. They were proudly proclaiming that he was a god that he was that he was the god that he was a messiah right and the jews understood this now now jesus knew that those people who were shouting and yelling and, and telling him that they loved him and crying out for him to save him he knew he knew that wasn't going to last he knew those same people would turn on him in less than a week and just as passionately as you see them today saying you know hosanna in the highest to the son of david you know save us son of david all these, these cries of, of joy and praise, he knew that they would equally passionately cry out for his death. He knew that was going to be coming in less than a week. So the disciples are probably looking around going, see, they're not going to kill him. Look at this. He's like, a, he's like a rock star here, right? It's like Chris Stapleton coming to town. You know, they were all excited about that. No. He knew that was fake. He knew all about that. And he knew some of those same people, most of those same people, were going to turn on him. Now, in one week, the same people who were shouting something, they were shouting something of praise, are now shouting something totally different. Um, let me read this to you. Luke 23:13. It says, Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us, and behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. So what, he, what he's saying here, Pilate's saying, listen, I, I investigated him. I interrogated the guy. I sent him to Herod. He investigated him. He interrogated There's nothing wrong with this guy. We're going to give him a beating and let him go. There's, he's done nothing worthy of death. Verse 17. Now, he was obligated to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man, and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. 
Now, get this. They're accusing Jesus of something worthy of death. This guy has already been proven to have committed a crime worthy of death. Okay? Jesus indicted this guy sentence. Okay, that's the difference. All right, sentence. Verse 20. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed him again. But they kept on calling out, saying what? Crucify. Crucify him. What were they just yelling a few days ago? Just a few days ago. Hosanna in the highest. Save us, son of David. Save us, our Messiah. Now they're yelling, crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified. And their voices began to prevail. In another one of the Gospels, they actually cried out, Let his blood be on our heads and that of the heads of our children. Whoever said that probably regrets that a lot. But anyway, uh, but they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. Verse 24, And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted. Now, a lot of people look at what Pilate did as heroic. He was still a coward. He, he gave in. He had the power, and he didn't care. He could have shut them down and told his guards, tell them to shut up. Start putting them in jail. They'll shut up. So he's not innocent, but so he, he granted their demand. Verse 25, and he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. So inevitably, the Jewish leaders protested the, uh, the reverence that people had for this man they were calling Messiah. They didn't like it. Right, And this is just the beginning of what we just read. Eventually, it's going to lead to that, that arrest and them asking for him to be killed. But he just comes in, and everyone else is praising, and immediately, immediately the leaders protest that. Look at this, Luke 19, 39-40. It says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, what? The stones will cry out. Now think about this. These Jewish leaders, they still think everybody's afraid of them. They think highly of themselves. And they said, Teacher, you hear what they're saying. They're calling you the Messiah, the Son of God. Tell your people to shut up. And you'll have people tell you, some secular historians tell you, Jesus never actually said he was God. Jesus never actually said he was the Messiah. Yeah, he did. Many times. That's just a lie. Many, many times. And here, if he was going to deny it, here was his chance. And he said, they said, listen, silence your people. Tell them to shut up. Tell your people to shut their mouth. You're not the Messiah, right? And they, he wanted them silenced. They were acknowledging everything they were afraid of, that the people would actually give him the power that they lusted for. But he refused. He refused. And he made one of the most powerful statements you're ever going to read in the Bible. I love this statement. Because Jesus knew it was time to reveal his identity. The time had come. And no man could stop it. See, the sooner we realize that God's plan is God's plan, and it's going to happen no matter what. No matter what's going on, God's plan is never going to change. It's going to stay on the same direction it's always been on. And when it's time, it's time. People always ask me, do you think God's going to get sick of everything and call an end to the world? That's not how it works. The time for the end was set before he created us. He knew. We're getting closer to it every day. It's not like God's going to wake up someday and go, oh, the Steelers lost the Super Bowl. Everybody out of the pool. That's not how it's going to work. You know, he knows when the end of time is. And we're working our way towards that time. This was the appointed time, the ordained time, for him to identify his son as the Messiah. This was the time. 
right? And here's what he was saying. He basically said, even if it were possible to silence the crowds, God would have made the stones on the ground cry out praise to the King of Kings. He was saying, today's the day I'm to be announced. And they can do it, or the stones can do it, or the squirrels can do it. It doesn't matter. Today's the day it's going to happen. So there's no silencing God's plan. Today God's plan is that I am presented as the Messiah they've all been waiting for. Right? And that is so, so powerful. Because, you know, the time's coming when Jesus is going to return. And I, I hate to be that guy. But I want to see if I'm the only one. Does anybody here look forward to that? Raise your hand if you look forward to that. Especially when your bills are due. I mean, every time, I look forward to that so much. When I see people on TV being so rude and blatantly disrespecting God and everything about God, and everybody's saying, times are getting so bad it's impossible. And I'm like, no, it isn't. It's going just like you thought it was. And I'll tell you something. It hasn't changed the fact that he is coming back to get us. And maybe this is wrong. Maybe it is. But I've told you, I'm just the biggest sinner as anybody. Right? But I am looking forward to the day when he comes back. And all those objectors, all those people who were cynics, all those people who are disrespectful, all those people who maligned his name for their own personal profit, all the atheists, all the people like that, I'm looking forward to the day when they have no choice but to hit their knees and bow before the Son of God. And I am excited about, I shouldn't be excited maybe, I don't know, but I am. Because this is one day when no lawyer can find a loophole, right? No lawyer can find a loophole. This is the day when the legislator can't come up with some stupid law that slaps, you know, Christians in the face. Not, not this day, right? No judge or no court that's trying to make their own rules can change it. Nobody's going to be able to stop the fact that he is returning for us. And that excites me. You know, the media can't spin the truth enough to stop him from coming. They can't do it. Oh, they'll probably try, but they can't do it. I read a book one time, and this guy said that when the, everyone's raptured out, he could see the media saying, well, if that's God just clearing out all the bad people. That's probably what they'll do. They'll find a way to spin it, but their spin isn't going to change the fact that he is returning for us. There's no corrupt politicians going to change that. It's not going to happen. No entitled tech giants who think they're God is going to change that. Those who think they're God will find out who really is on that day. And I, this God help me, <laughs> I am looking forward to it. Because on that day, even the world's most renowned atheists will have no choice. The Bible says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. They have no choice but to hit their knees and recognize and respect the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I don't know about you, but that just makes me stoked. I just love that, don't you? And people say, well, you shouldn't look forward to that. You should pray that they all get saved. I am praying they get saved. But the ones who don't, you know what I'm saying? The ones who don't, the ones who call me Bible thumper and, and the ones who call me delusional, you know, those people, I hope they get saved. But if they don't, I want to see them bow. Don't you? I want to say names right now. That's terrible. I'm not going to, but I want to. But I am looking forward to that day. I better stop. I'm going to preach for a month. I told him I'd be short today. Anyway, uh, and I am stoked for that. Okay, so let's look at the very end here, the last section, the prophecy. Luke 19.41. He says, When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and what? Wept over it, saying, 
If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. What he's saying is the time of your visitation is when the Messiah was revealed. He's saying, when I was marching in, all those people who were saying, Hosanna in the highest, their minds are going to change, but at least for that moment, they recognized who I was. That's the day of their visitation when Jesus revealed himself to his own people. They didn't. They rejected him. They refused to recognize him on the day of their visitation. And he's saying, had you listened, had you believed on that day, the millennial kingdom would have started. If the Jews had accepted him that day as a nation, that promised kingdom would have began that day. So he wanted them to know, let me, let me tell you what you turned down behind door number one. Okay? You, the power you wanted to be would have been yours because I would have been reigning as Messiah and King. I came in the day of visitation to show you, give you that opportunity. You rejected me. So let me tell you what's going to happen now. Your city's going to be laid waste. See, in 70 AD, there was a Roman general named Titus. And Titus came into Jerusalem, and he was a warmonger. And he absolutely laid it waste, destroyed it. I mean, tore the buildings down to the ground. Their beloved temple that they were so excited about, he tore it to the ground, burned it, right? They said that he, they even were doing things that would mock the God of the Jews in the temple, sacrificing pigs and stuff in there. I mean, he was a brutal man. They killed a great many of them and enslaved the rest of them. And all those things happened for one reason, because there were two paths they could have chose. You could believe the scriptures that said, not only that I would come, but I would come just like this. What excuse would they have when they stand before God? Well, how are we to know that's the Messiah? I told you through Isaiah, through Zechariah, that he was going to come on the colt of a donkey. Okay? That's not too generalized. If a guy comes in riding a colt of a donkey, might be him. Right? I told you he was going to come. I told you where he's going to come from. I told you what he was going to be called. He was going to come from Bethlehem. He was going to be called a Nazarite. What did they say? This is the Nazarite prophet, right? He's like, I told you all these specific things. I said he would be born of a virgin. Everything I told you was very specific. It all happened. I gave you all the evidence you needed. But you wanted power. You wanted to use your religion as a means of profit and gain. So you ignored me. Even when the most obvious sign, the Messiah, comes in, you ignored me. And because of that, the day is going to come when the Romans are going to level you. Would I have protected you? Yeah, they would have been under you if you'd have trusted me. But you didn't. So you made your bed, lying, right? That's exactly what he was trying to tell them. You know, nobody, nobody is going to change God's plan. And every time I read about the triumphal entry, this was God's way of saying, you have no excuse. This is your day of visitation. You know, to each one of us, we all have a day of visitation. And let me explain that to you. 
that day when God reveals to you, you need me. You, you remember that day? I do. When God says, you, you need me. Enough doing it your way. How's it worked out? You need me. I'm here for you. I want to love you. I want to provide for you. I want to guide you. All you have to do is accept me. And he gives us evidence all around us, all around us, and we just ignore it. And the same thing happens to us. The day will come when he'll return, and we'll have no, we'll have nothing to, to defend ourselves for because we'll know that we were there in the day of visitation. He revealed himself to us, and we chose other things over him. And that is so, so tough for us to understand. But this leads to probably the greatest story told in the Bible. We're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the resurrection. But if there's one thing I want you to take away from this, it's that God has a plan for you. Embrace it while you have the time, because God also has a time set when it all ends. Don't take so much time to question His plan that you let it pass you by. Because I promise you, no matter how difficult it sounds, He's got everything worked out if you trust Him. And that's one thing I think this story blatantly tells. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you what to please bow your head. Is this your first time? We always like to give an invitation. If you're not sure where you stand or you just want prayer, I don't need to know. But I want to pray for you. Just make eye contact with me and put your head, bless those people, right back down. And I'm going to pray for you. Bless those people. And I really do, just so you know. Bless those people. Bless those people. I'm, I'm praying for you. And if you're watching listening online, God knows your heart. Bless those people. And he, he will he'll understand when I'm praying and I'm talking about you too. Believers, this message should excite us. But it should also put us on alert. Are we doing what he's asked us to do? Because the time is coming and the opportunity will be gone. While you have the opportunity, whatever he's burdening you to do, whatever he's He's putting on your heart, do it. Because if He's putting it there, He's already giving you success. He's just waiting for you to accept it. Let's pray. God, I thank You so much for all that You do. I thank You for Your love and Your mercy and Your grace, especially Your grace. As we read about all You did to secure our salvation, it just moves me that You could love me that much. Knowing that had I been the only one that ever transgressed Your law, You still would have come to give me an opportunity to have eternal life. I thank you for that, God, and I thank you that you love me despite the fact that I'm never going to be good enough. I'm never going to be righteous. But you love me and gave me your righteousness because I believe that what you did was enough to guarantee it. And I just pray if someone here doesn't know you or listening doesn't know you, that whatever's holding them back, just remove it because we want them to see that love that took you to the cross is still there and still ready to accept it. And if they believe, I pray they share it with us. But for those of us who are believers, God, let this kind of thing move us. Don't let another Easter go by, God, where we just go through the motions. Let us remember what it really means and the impact it's had on our lives and let us be excited about being used to impact us. We just thank you, God, for all that you do. We ask you to keep us safe. And if you don't return to take us home before we meet again, let us come together one more time and give you all the praise, honor, and glory. You're so worthy of it. We ask these things in Jesus' name.